Garden Success is brought to you in part by the Arbor Gate, featuring unusual plants, artisan-created decorative pieces, and a constantly changing array of items that bring beauty, comfort, and even flavor to the home and garden. Arbor Gate, 15635 FM 2920, Tomball, Texas, 281-351-8851 or arborgate.com. Garden Success is also brought to you by The Farm Patch, 3519 South College Avenue in Bryan, 979-822-7209. Welcome to Garden Success with Skip Richter the show designed to help you have a bountiful garden and a beautiful landscape. Call in now with your lawn and garden questions at 979-845-5689 or email your questions to gardensuccess at tamu.edu. And now, Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist, Skip Richter. Hello and welcome to Garden Success. We are looking forward today to talking about a special topic. Now, normally we're a call-in radio show, but... Don't try to call in today. I won't be here. Uh, We're actually coming to you recorded. And so uh, wait for next week. We'll be back again live and we can answer your gardening questions. But today we're going to visit with uh, Tim Hartman. Uh, Tim Hartman is assistant professor and extension specialist uh, in fruit with the A&M Hort Department. How are you, Tim? Doing great. Doing great. It's so good to have you here. Uh, Tim, I consider Tim a friend and just always enjoy talking to him because he's a wealth of information. Uh, and an experience with fruit. And uh, today we're going to take a, a kind of a, a different angle on fruit. We're not talking about commercial fruit production or things that you want to go outside Bryan College Station and buy 100 acres and plant full of fruit. We're talking about the stuff that homeowners can mess around and play with uh, to have a little bit of fun. I, I One thing I have learned over the years is that as as gardeners, we always want to try stuff that's different, that's outside the box. You know, we we go to vacation in Colorado and we haul a blue spruce back to kill it here in Texas the next with it before the summer's over. Guilty. Uh, guilty, yeah. <laughs> I always said there's there's enough money spent on blue spruces in Texas to uh, buy a ski resort, but <laughs> the um, but we like to try that. You know, can you can you grow a lilac down here or hostas or things? And the answer is almost always no to those things because there's a reason why. Uh, the streets of Bryan College Station aren't lined with lilacs. And uh, despite your memories from the Midwest of fragrance, uh, I don't know, buy a crepe myrtle and spray perfume on it, and there you go. (laughs) That's about as close as we can get. But we're going to talk about fruit. We're going to talk about some things that that can be grown here or maybe uh, some of the problems, uh, as well as some of the problems that you might have and how to maybe overcome those. So sit back and let's have some fun. Um, uh, If you find some things that interest you and are interested in giving them a try, uh, you know, let us know how they do because we're always, always learning more. So, boy, Tim, that was a long introduction, but uh, I think we're ready to go. How about you? Yeah, I'm I'm ready. (laughs) Okay. Got me excited. All right, good. Well, there you go. Well, I, you know, Tim and I were talking before the uh, the show and I was uh, mentioning you know I actually my first degree in horticulture my degree in horticulture rather uh, is in pomology which uh, pomology is named after Pomona the Greek goddess of fruit right huh. uh, and so uh, so I I kind of wet my teeth in horticulture I guess uh, in the whole area of fruit growing so it is it is still in many ways a first love of mine 
Uh, but let's talk about some of the perhaps a little more common uh, fruits that we have here. And one of them I'd like to talk about is blackberries. Um, blackberries uh, grow wild in many parts of, of the state. And uh, I grew up picking dewberries, uh, trying to avoid the copperheads among the dewberries uh, out wild. Uh, but we have the, the nice upright blackberries, and uh, there are many of the breeding programs for fruit across the country have gone by the wayside uh, in one way or another. Uh, but blackberries is, is still very active in Arkansas, and uh, the University of Arkansas has incredible varieties have come out of there, some of which uh, do okay down here. So could you talk a little bit about what you what are some of the blackberries that you think might do best for people and uh, that, you know, we could still, that we can get a hold of? Because a lot of times with new things, you know, it's hard to, they're there, but it's hard to find them. Yeah, blackberries are what I kind of consider the perfect small fruit. Um, they really, for the most part, especially on a homeowner level, don't require a lot of input. Um, relatively easy. Uh, don't take a lot of space. You're putting them three feet apart, and mm -hmm. uh, you can be in full production and within you know two or three years. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. They bloom late, so they're usually we don't have the, the common problems with spring frost that we would with right. things like peaches. Um, but you're right, yeah, the University of Arkansas breeding program has been incredibly fruitful, pun intended. There you go. Um, and it started out with uh, the late Dr. Jim Moore, and then it's carried on with uh, uh, now retired, uh, retiring uh, Dr. Uh, John Clark. And it's just really incredible what they've done up there. Um, and so basically with blackberries, we have three different types of blackberries. We have uh, thorny uh, varieties. Okay, so these would be like the old Brazos. Uh, Kiowa was an improvement mm -hmm. over it. Uh, produces the largest fruit. They mm -hmm. tend to be tart. They're what I call more the the cobbler berries mm -hmm. or pie berries, uh, right. but they're thorny. Um, Rossboro is an old variety from A and M years yeah, ago. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, Rossboro and and Womack and Bryson. Mm -hmm. I think those were released in the seventies. And uh, although they're smaller than, than Brazos, they, they tend to be a little better quality. Mm. Uh, but, but that germplasm, that genetic material, is, was actually provided to University of Arkansas and helped kind of form, serve as a foundation for mm -hmm. the, the later ones that were developed there. But, uh, and, of course, you have thornless ones like uh, Arapaho, Navajo, Apache, Washita mm -hmm. um, one of my favorites for Brazos mm -hmm. County, um, Osage, uh, and so these are these are thornless varieties, and then we get into the primocane mm -hmm. fruiting varieties. So you mentioned some names there, and uh, one thing that uh, you can know is if it's a blackberry and it's named after a Native American uh -huh. tribe, it came out of the breeding program at Arkansas. Yes. Just like with crepe myrtles that are Native American, it yes. came out of USDA breeding up in Beltsville. And if it's a pecan with a Native uh -huh. American, it uh -huh. came out of uh, the uh, Brownwood and other USDA breeding programs, right? Yeah, yeah, and I just I think that's that's I just love that because you know pecans and uh, blackberries being actual native crops, mm -hmm. I, I just think that's that's so fitting. Yeah, um, yeah, that's a good that's a good choice. Yeah. So you mentioned Wachita, which is starts with an O because yes. it's it's not starting with a W. Uh, but go ahead and tell us about what you're, you're about to talk primocane. Yeah, uh, and so those are you've got thorny and thornless ones, and I do want to mention that they're technically prickles. Um, but you might as well be thorns. They, hmm. they still hurt just as much. Um, and I do want to mention that 
uh, we will have done on Aggie Horticulture Facebook Live video. Mm-hmm. It'll be available to watch on Friday, um, but you'll be able to watch it later on, mm-hmm. on Blackberry Online. Varieties. Yeah, yeah. Great. Um, but so primocane is the third category, and this is a really cool trait. And basically, a little bit about uh, Blackberry Botany or Bramble Botany is that uh, you have what are called primocanes. So mm-hmm. the plant pushes out these shoots, they grow, they're vegetative. The next year after they go through the winter, they produce their fruit. In that second year, they are called floricanes, implying that they flower and fruit, and then they die. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, the plant, the root system is perennial. It continues to send up more primocanes, which, mm-hmm. of course, then become floricanes. So the caveat here is that some of these what we call primocane fruiting varieties actually can produce on those one-year-old that otherwise would be vegetative canes that haven't gone through winter yet. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So the I so there are two implications of that. One is that you can theoretically at least get some fruit during the first year. It doesn't always happen, but mm-hmm. the big one is and what is real exciting to me is that you can actually get multiple crops per year, which is really exciting. So tell about how that works. Like when this is assuming you've got a primocane that's growing and fruiting, uh-huh. and then it becomes a floricane in fruits. So the spring crop would be from last year's cane? Or how, how does that, how do you get a multiple crop thing going on? Yeah, so for example, my Primark Freedom and Primark Traveler, those are primocane ver- fruiting varieties that are actually, they're also thornless. So they're mm-hmm. thornless and primocane fruiting. And for these plants, uh, I'm picking them right now, and so they are producing on their floricanes. So mm-hmm. the canes that grew last year went through the chilling of wintertime uh, producing, but they're also cranking out new primocanes. The primocanes will actually uh, fruit at their terminals. As soon as they stop growing, they terminate in flowers and fruit. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, I'll get a second crop in usually around July, and mm-hmm. then depending on uh, the weather, um, I may get a crop again in, in August, September okay. as well. And these wow. are coming off the one-year-old primocane crops. Uh, and, the, and these new varieties, are they're large, they're sweet. Of course, yeah. every variety has its pros and cons, uh-huh. no matter what fruit we're talking about. But uh, it's pretty amazing. If you've, yes. if you've grown up picking dewberries like I did, <laughs> uh, this is a whole new monster. Oh, it's a it's game wonderful. changer. Yeah. Absolutely. And speaking of game changers... Um, They've also released a few other new ones. Um, the most recent would be Primark Horizon, which is a thorny uh, primocane fruiting variety. But then Caddo is another floricane fruiting thornless variety. But what we're really excited about is the variety Ponca, mm-hmm. P-O-N-C-A. Uh, and this is really a game changer. Dr. John Clark, um, who is the breeder there at Arkansas, uh, he calls this kind of, or I think he's called it, I may be misquoting him, but something like the Holy Grail in terms of blackberry flavor. Um, okay. It's a floricane fruiter. It's thornless. Mm-hmm. Fruit aren't huge, but the flavor is just incredible. It has uh, very, very little acid, so very little mm-hmm. tartness. Mm-hmm. So if you take that tartness away from the flavor profile, you're left with basically just just sugar. Right. And so it's it's like eating candy. It, it's kind of wow. scary. You, you got to watch yourself. You, you may, <laughs> yeah, you don't want to overdo it. But okay. Sapanka is a really exciting one. 
Uh, he hasn't he hasn't developed one yet with saccharin instead of sugar <laughs> or something like that for for diet berries. Ba- right? Maybe later. Maybe <laughs> later. Well, panka is, is is pretty cool, and I think it's available. Uh, you get, you're not going to find it anywhere you look, but uh, there are some places that'll carry. It. Maybe we'll talk about some options for that. Yeah, one I, later. I even saw it at Lowe's, well, Lowe's Home Depot, one of the two oh, this really? spring, and at okay. Brian. Yeah. Hmm. Wow, that's a surprise. Huh? Well, uh, so these these. Um, Primacane fruiting berries are, are kind of, they are a game changer and they're a new thing. And I think the thornless are too because, you know, a lot of people don't like getting poked by the prickles as you <laughs> described them. Uh, but if, even if you're listening to this and you plan on not planting any more blackberries, but you have some, you know, the key to painless picking is that when those floricanes finish producing, go ahead and get them out of yes. there because there's not a lot of tangle uh, at that point in time. Uh-huh. To, it's easy to prune them, to cut them off at the ground. Of course, you want gloves, but I even use the the pruning to kind of grab gra- a cane yes. and yank them yes. out of there. And then the, all that's left is the new primacanes coming up. Uh-huh. But we also want to tip those, yes, don't sir. we? Uh-huh. At about maybe chest high or so, or do you tip them at a different height? Yeah, it depends on your trellis, but usually, you know, you see some around three and a half, four feet tall. Okay. I've on the on Freedom and Traveler, those are just so vigorous that oh, yeah. I've gotten to where I I actually tip them a little bit uh, shorter, about waist high, because mm-hmm. they they branch out uh, so high usually. Mm-hmm. Okay. But yeah, that's that's a good point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to produce more laterals. Yeah, and so instead of a one shoot, now you have a bunch of side shoots, yes. and all of those bear, and uh-huh. so you increase. Okay, I just want to kind of clarify that yeah that's good to mention that are going to plant these now blackberries they they're a little bit they have a little bit of an opinion about their soil uh and so would you talk a little bit about uh growing wh- what soil is blackberry heaven and we probably don't have it where the <laughs> listeners are living in in many cases so how do you how would you fix up a spot for a blackberry patch here in this area yeah, so Brazos County, of course, we've got where you have topsoil. The topsoil is pretty good, but mm-hmm. then you get into the college station, concrete, clay, mm-hmm. which is obviously not going to be good. Blackberries do need good drainage. Um, and so, you know, if you don't have that soil, you'd, that especially the depth of topsoil, mm-hmm. uh, putting them in a raised bed, a little, you know, something like you do for a vegetable garden, maybe 8 to yeah. 12 inches high, mm-hmm. would not be bad. Uh, they do need drainage. Uh, we were talking earlier, and you mentioned that you can see chlorosis, some mm-hmm. iron deficiency yes. um, on alkaline soil, and, and, and that mm-hmm. can be a problem. Uh, but, but usually they're, they're pretty easy. Well, you know, and again, we said earlier, this is not about commercial growing. Right. This is about, although blackberries do have commercial potential oh, yes. in this region, uh, but for the home gardener, you can put a box in and buy you a mix of sand and compost oh, yeah. and things and create just a little nice little blackberry spot. Uh-huh. And in lots the of mulch. Lots of mulch. Yeah, because yeah, you, you especially on the thorny ones, you don't want to have to be pulling weeds through the yes. or the prickles. Sorry. Right, there you go. All right. Well, I've got 800 fruit I want to talk about, and I can see at the pace <laughs> we're going, we're not going to make it <laughs> anywhere close. Let's talk a little about pomegranates. Uh-huh. Uh, that's a fruit that uh, some people, uh, you know, grew up eating them. There's some cultures where pomegranate is a huge thing. Oh, yeah. Uh, for most folks that maybe grew up here in Texas, they probably never had a pomegranate in the backyard. Uh-huh. So uh, we've done some research with AgriLife uh, in the state and just given them our best shot and uh, found some challenges. But will you comment a little bit about pomegranates briefly? Yeah, um, and, and I do want to mention that uh, that work was really headed up by Dr. Larry Stein and, and, and Jim Comis. Um, 
uh, Dr. Monty Nesbitt also worked on that as well. There was some really extensive trialing, variety mm-hmm. trialing d- done on that. Um, and over at Fredericksburg and Fredericksburg some and I believe down in Wilson County below San Antonio. Mm-hmm. And, Floresville. Uh, mm-hmm. fl- yeah, Floresville and, and even in, and kind of in this area. And I always say it's easy to grow a pomegranate tree. But to grow a good quality pomegranate fruit is a whole nother ball game. We have some other fruit like that, don't we? Yes, we do. <laughs> yes. Okay. So what is the, the number one reason why we just have trouble really producing pomegranates here? So barring the whole cold hardiness thing. Mm-hmm. So you know, for us, the plants, at least most varieties, are going to be cold hardy here in, in BCS mm-hmm. area. Um, they will get... Uh, this internal heart rot mm-hmm. uh, caused by a fungal pathogen that gets in uh, at bloom. We think it may also uh, be vectored by piercing sucking insects like stink bugs. Right. But basically, you can take a fruit that uh, may be perfectly clean. It may have some sun scald or some other superficial mm-hmm. uh, disease on it, but you open it up. And it's just rotten on the inside. It mm-hmm. is just, it's inedible. It's all those little aerial juice filled sacks mm-hmm. are just rotten. And the problem is you don't know until you cut it open. Yeah. And that well, is the, the biggest. That's a, that's a sad shame. It really uh, is. Because yeah. we have some varieties uh-huh. that are incredible. Oh, uh, yeah. If you've ever, I grew up with a pomegranate tree, uh, and it had the hard, rock hard uh-huh. fruit uh, that were the arrows rather, uh-huh. the seeds. And uh, now we have so- types that have such soft seed. Yes. I say now we have. We, we've tested some uh-huh. types that have soft seed that uh, you just kind of eat the whole thing. You don't have yeah, to, yeah. to really uh, spit out a seed. But that disease is just, and you and uh, from what I've heard, we've tried all kinds of sprays to stop it, and it's just not practical to try to do. Yeah, Larry Stein did a, uh, an efficacy trial, and you got to realize there aren't many things that are actually labeled for use on pomegranates. Yes, and yes. nothing that was available really proved to be effective. But... Mm-hmm. Um, I do recall from from uh, that trial, though, from his results, that there were a few varieties, in particular uh, Austin, mm-hmm. like the town, like the yeah. city, uh, tended to get a little less of that heart rot. Is that the one they found growing in a guy's backyard, and so it got the name Austin? Yeah, I believe it was something like yeah, that. There's yeah, there's one over kind of west of I-35. Yes. I'm, okay, yeah. And I've got it in my backyard, and I don't ever see the heart rot on it. Uh, okay. But So if you wanted to try one... Buy an Austin, put a clear umbrella over it to keep the rain off. <laughs> and the sun. They can get and, sun skull, too. Okay, and a little shade cloth over the clear umbrella. <laughs> uh, make sure the drainage is good, and if it gets, uh, if we have another 7 degrees, be ready to cover it up. Yeah, no, other big, than that, no big deal. Yeah. Other than that, it's a breeze. Yeah. Okay, good. Well, let's uh, let's talk a little about blueberries. Uh-huh. Um, now, I'll just kind of let you give us the your thoughts on blueberries and the types, and then if someone's determined to try to grow some blueberries, how would you recommend they do it? Because it can be done, uh-huh. not commercially, here. <laughs> yeah, pro- probably not in Brazos County or not yeah. in many places. But, but yeah, blueberries uh, are a wonderful crop. Um, obviously, we, we're familiar with all of the health benefits associated mm-hmm. with the anthocyanins and everything in there. Uh, very healthy. It's a native crop. Mm-hmm. Generally, at least when you're talking about rabbit eyes, they tend to be fairly easy. Uh, but there are three different types of blueberries for the most part that are grown. There's mm-hmm. the northern high bush. So if you go up, uh, Skip, you were talking earlier about yeah. when you're in Missouri, how they yeah. would grow 
blueberries up there. Midwest, New Jersey, all through those yeah, areas. Yeah, Michigan and, and Pacific Northwest. These mm-hmm. are the big plump ones. They're they're really, really good. Uh, we can't grow them here. Right. They need too much chilling. It's too hot. Mm-hmm. So there is rabbit eye, uh, vaccinium uh, uh, ashii, um, or vergatum. And this is a, a plant, a species that comes out of kind of the Florida panhandle, southern Georgia. There's been a lot of work done at University of Georgia and Florida mm-hmm. to develop varieties, uh, things like, for example, Austin, Brightwell, Tiff Blue, Premier, Climax, or some of the mm-hmm. some of the original, I guess you could say, original five that were recommended for mm-hmm. Texas. Um, they are self-incompatible. They need cross-pollination mm-hmm. via via bees, um, but they're they're relatively easy. And then more recently, we've got the southern high bush. Mm-hmm. So that is a northern high bush that has been uh, crossed with, for the most part, Vaccinium darrowi, which is a uh, which is a more southern uh, kind of evergreen, almost mm-hmm. like species. And so basically, we've got the southern the northern high bush, the really good fruit with some heat tolerance and some low chilling requirements. Mm-hmm. It is self-fertile, but it's a little trickier to grow. It has a little mm-hmm. more disease issues. Right. Um, and, of course, the big thing with blueberries is soil and water. Right. You have to have excellent drainage. pH has to be 4 to 5.5. We're not talking, when we say acid, we're not talking 6 to 7. We're talking mm-hmm. 5.5 at the mm-hmm. highest, mm-hmm. and then absolutely perfect irrigation water quality and so don't even think about turning on the tap oh gosh uh, no <laughs> catch rainwater which yes. you can catch a lot of rainwater on we a can I, i've talked about this before but you know on a on a 1,000 square foot let's say your home is 2,000 square feet just to pick a number uh-huh. uh, every time it rains an inch 1,200 gallons of water fall on that roof and that's a lot of water. Yes. And so if you have a way to capture, capture it and store it, uh, that opens the door to, you know how we always want to grow stuff that doesn't grow here? Uh-huh. Suddenly camellias, azaleas, and blueberries start looking pretty yeah, good. Yeah, it's possible. Yeah. <laughs> While in the meantime, I'm saying don't plant them. <laughs> uh, yeah, southern high bush is even pickier, I think, about water quality because it's both the pH, it's the total dissolved salts, but all bicarbonates. Bicarbonate, and sodium. sodium, and, yeah. and, and boron and other things too yeah, yeah a cast yeah. of characters that we that come out of our tap when yes. we turn it yes. on okay but, but it, you can grow them in the southern high bush you said were mostly self-fruitful uh yes yeah they'll still benefit from some cross-pollination again bees are the primary pollinator the mm-hmm. pollinizer would be other varieties that bloom at mm-hmm. the same time but but yeah, uh, they'll generally set pretty well. Uh, whereas uh, rabbit eyes, you really do need cross pollination. And if you go out to blueberry patches between here and Beaumont, and of course across the south, you're primarily going to rabbit eye patches uh, when you go commercially. Although southern highbush now is moving in and becoming a commercial option if they have the soil and water. To- oh yeah, yeah. I was talking to um, one of my friends who's uh, at, at UGA, and, and he was talking about that. Uh, that for the it's about thirty thousand acres in southern Georgia, and pretty much all the new plantings that are going in are southern highbush. Southern now. high bush. yeah, pretty much all thirty thousand acres. Uh-huh. Wow. Okay, and I love southern. I love highbush and southern highbush berries a lot more than rabbit eye. They're a eye. lot better. But you know, we can grow a rabbit eye. But uh, yeah, pots, you, uh, <laughs> raised beds. Uh, tw- I think twenty five a twenty five gallon pot is is ideal. You could 25. move it around. Yeah. That's what I use at home is I well, grow in 25s. And, and, and uh, Tim, that 
allows you to the soil volume to where you're not sitting beside it watering it three times a day to right. trying to keep it from getting yes. dry because blueberries will not tolerate will a not. day of drought in the Texas summer sun. No, not, not at all. That is that is pretty cool. Um, the just a fun fact on blueberries. I was driving around William Fitch uh -huh. uh, last fall, looking at the beautiful burgundy color on farkleberries, which grow natively here. Uh -huh. Well, farkleberry and southern, or the rabbit eye, I know are graph compatible, at least a partially. Uh -huh. And uh, so, I don't know, maybe that's a strategy. You need to go into business, create a nursery selling farkleberry grafted <laughs> to rabbit eye, and uh, I don't know. Yeah, I know there's some people who have looked at that, but uh, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, and farkleberries, you can eat them, but they're nothing to write home about. Yeah. Edible, but yeah. <laughs> Not palatable. Yeah. <laughs> Good. All right, let's keep going. Let's talk persimmons. This uh -huh. is one of my favorite uh, fruit. It, in fact, I would say persimmons, I would probably designate as the Rodney Dangerfield of the fruit world. <laughs> uh, people show them no respect. And now there are, again, we talk about fruit and cultures and things. There's there's many cultures where persimmon is just huge. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, and uh, if you're from east eastern parts of the state, across the country, when I was in Missouri, there were lots of wild persimmons, mm -hmm. the Diasporus virginiana that grows here and, and further east, uh, which is also graph compatible with uh -huh. the improvements. Talk about the, the good persimmons. We've always had things that we've grown, a handful of rice, but there's a lot of new stuff, and you guys are doing some research. Yeah, um, so... Uh, we're talking about Diasporus khaki, K-A-K-I. That is the, the epithet, specific epithet of the Asian persimmon. Mm -hmm. uh, different species altogether from the American. Not that the American, I love the flavor of the American mm -hmm. one, but it's, you really got to do some work to yeah. to eat them and, and be very careful that it's fully ripe. Don't touch any of the skin. And yeah, astringency is a word that's hard to describe, <laughs> but very clear when you experience it. Yes, yes. <laughs> So uh, I'm working with uh, Dr. Justin Shiner. He's a viticulture uh, specialist here and associate prof at Texas A&M. And I, I think this is, could almost be considered cruel and unusual punishment. But uh, <laughs> he teaches a wine class here at A&M. And to demonstrate astringency, I don't know if he still does this, but he would get green American persimmons and let cut them up and let the students taste them experience because you know of course red wines you know uh tanat especially you know and some of these other red red wine varietals you know they really have a lot of tannins and so that i guess that's one way to describe it i think cruel and unusual is good you know that's <laughs> like a kid growing up giving your friends a chili pekin pepper and yeah tell them it's telling a, them to take a big bite yeah it's a little sweet berry i think yeah. my dad did that to me at some oh, point no. but, <laughs> but uh anyway right. so yeah persimmons uh basically for the asian species we have really two main types. We have, like you mentioned, uh, the astringent varieties, mm -hmm. and these would be varieties like, uh, for example, Hachia, uh, Eureka, Tamopan, um, and these are, Sejo is another really good one, um, that they have to be completely soft before mm -hmm. you can eat them, and you cannot eat the skin, otherwise you're going to have a very bad experience. Mm -hmm. uh, you're going to really pucker up. But there are new. There are other varieties from the non-astringent type, and these are varieties where the tannins break down uh, uh, before they get totally before the fruit gets soft. Mm -hmm. So if you're familiar with the Fuyu type, there are many Fuyu strains mm -hmm. like Hannah and Gyro and mm -hmm. and many other ones. Um, Saruga would be 
another one. There are many of these non-astringent types. And basically the difference is the fruit remains firm for a long time. It loses its astringency. Mm -hmm. Uh, The skin loses its astringency. So basically you Mm -hmm. could cut it up and eat it just like an apple. It's crisp. You eat the skin and everything. Well, and despite the dangers of astringency, dangers in quotes, Uh uh, I I prefer the astringent types for flavor. I I like... I always say the way to eat a persimmon is, number one, get an astringent one, and uh-huh. then get in the bathtub and have someone hand you a ripe astringent persimmon. Uh, enjoy it because you're going to then need to take a bath. Cause yeah. It, it, I mean, it's, it's just a a, it's like eating a bag of watery jam or yeah. something like that. It's and pretty it just, soupy. It's going to get everywhere. And yeah, just yeah. be ready to clean but, up right But now. I agree. I, 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 I mean, I grew up on on some of the older ones like Tamopan, and, and I just, maybe it's sentimental, but I just think they have a, a richer flavor to mm-hmm. them, more yeah. intense. But right. I, I agree. Yeah. But that's not to diss the non-astringents. So tell us a little bit about the, the planting you guys have out there. Yeah, so we've been grafting, and uh, we've got almost a full acre. I want to say it's around maybe 80 different variety named varieties. 80 uh, varieties. Wow. A few of these are, are Virginiana, American. Mm-hmm. There are actually a few like a Nic- Nicotus gift, which is a hybrid between the two species. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But most of these, the vast majority, are the Asian persimmons, and uh, we are grafting onto, like you mentioned, the American persimmon. Is a, it makes a good rootstock. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, to really do some extensive variety evaluation, yeah. which hasn't been done in decades, really. Yeah. Well, that's, that's good that you're doing it. Yeah, right right across the river in Burleson County. So there we're really go. excited about that. So th- that kind of information, I mean, we, it's going to be 10 years uh, because, you, you know, you got to get them up, fruiting, uh-huh. and then give them some time to learn. A lot of times a variety of some fruit or nut will come out and we'll be real excited about it and then... Over a few years, you kind of realize a challenge. Maybe it's yes. a pecan that the, the limbs are subject to breakage uh-huh. more, or, you know, some some other aspect like that. But um, hopefully in a few years, you'll start to get some good information. Oh, yeah. We're, yeah, we're pretty pretty excited about it. Good. I'm excited about it. That That's excellent to know. Uh, we're talking with uh, Dr. Tim Hartman. Tim is assistant professor and extension specialist in fruit uh, here at the horticulture department at Texas A&M. And our topic today, by the way, we're coming by tape, so while this is normally a call-in show, don't call in today. We'll be back live next week. Uh, But we're talking about fruit for the home gardener, things that sometimes are outside the box uh, that maybe, well, we we wouldn't want to recommend for a commercial planting, but in home gardens, we can do a lot of unusual things to make a plant feel at home, even though this area may not make it feel at home without those extra measures. And so this is kind of for fun. Uh-huh. Uh, it's not, not sending out recommendations, go invest and fill your backyard with this. But uh, here's how you do it if you want to give it a shot. That's that's the theme of the day. Uh, so let's, with that in mind, let's talk about kiwis. Uh, we tell the listeners a little bit about the types of kiwi that are out there and some work that's been done here and elsewhere in Texas. Yeah, so kiwi fruit is a really interesting crop. Um, they're about 66 different species of kiwi fruit. They're all vines from Eastern Asia. What you and I are primarily familiar with is the species Actinidia deliciosa. That is the green-fleshed kiwi that has the funny little fuzzy skin. It's actually uh, it actually hails from China, not New Zealand, where it was first really domesticated on a large scale. Mm-hmm. Um, China is the number one producer, then Italy, then New, Ze- New Zealand, um, and you know. 
a lot of people with Kiwi, it's kind of take it or leave it. Uh, but there's a lot, there are a lot more exciting things. Uh, yeah. You may have tried the gold, and this is Actinidia, sorry, Actinidia chinensis, uh, the golden kiwi mm. fruit, totally different animal. Yes. And if you haven't tried it, it's starting to make it back into the stores. Uh, they finished harvesting in New Zealand, so that's the fruit we're getting now. Uh, very little fuzz on the skin, so mm-hmm. it's not like biting into a tennis ball. Mm-hmm. Uh, tends to have lower acids, so kind of like that punka blackberry, more of a sweeter, uh, greater perceived sweetness, yellow flesh, mm-hmm. and more vitamin C. It's just mm-hmm. just all around better. And, and and the color on the outside, it, it it's less fuzzy, but it's also more of a golden color. Yeah, it, depending on the variety, it can be a little more gold, especially okay. if it's yeah if it hasn't gotten too much sun. Oh, okay. So yeah. Okay. And uh, so this golden kiwi, um, what what have you guys learned about your? And how many years now have you been working on this particular trial? So I'll, I'll uh, I guess I could blame Dr. Dave Creech, a uh, go. good friend and, and colleague at SFA, Nacogdoches, Texas. He received some plants in 2011, first fruit in 2014, mm-hmm. um, and. They, they really like uh, acidic soil. They need good water, need a, a heck of a trellis. Um, mm-hmm. They are a vine. But there's been a crop there, a decent crop, the last six out of eight. We're hoping for seven out of nine years. At um, SFA. At SFA, in, okay. yes. And so really, it's really been fun. Uh, I jumped on board in 2015, mm-hmm. uh, and that was actually what I did my, my dissertation work on was, was golden kiwi fruit, looking at uh, the factors that, that determine, you know, if it's going to be uh, suitable as a commercial crop in Texas, mm-hmm. and uh, so we've we've learned a lot. Um, but by and large, what's been kind of interesting is that the golden kiwi fruit, especially in terms of chilling requirement uh, and cold hardiness, tends to be a little better adapted to Texas than the green does, which is good news because the gold is, right. in my opinion, at least a lot better anyway. Right. Uh, attempts have been made in the past to grow the the fuzzy brown uh-huh. green interior kiwis here with no lasting success. So, but there are, the golden has some Achilles heels and so what what is the challenge there? Yeah, so I mentioned that it needs good quality water, needs acidic soil, not to the extent of blueberry, but you know, needs to be below pH of 7. Uh mm-hmm. you need a trellis. Uh surprisingly for not being that cold hardy, they are a, t- a truly a temperate fruit. They need quite a bit of chilling. Most varieties need more than the 6 to 700 hours we get on average here. Okay. Um but the biggest thing is cold hardiness. Now, cold hardiness uh is incredibly dependent upon the age of the plant and its acclimation. Okay. So, give you an example. So, you put a young plant out and it's growing, it's rocking along, it goes full throttle into the fall. You get a freeze, say, you know, late November, early December, like we usually do here, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, or even a frost. If it gets below about 27 degrees, you're mm-hmm. going to kill that plant to the ground. Mm. However, uh, our older plants made it to 6 degrees Fahrenheit last year in Winter Storm Erie and even minus 3 in Nacogdoches, completely unscathed. So minus the challenge three. is... If you could get those plants uh, through the first three or four years right. to where they're up in size, they kind of slow down going into the fall, mm-hmm. then they're hardy. But that is the challenge. That's the biggest challenge right there. Well, that's where a homeowner might have a chance with heroic huh? measures to pull <laughs> that off, right? Uh, whereas commercially, it, it, 
you're not going to do that to right. five acres. Right. Yeah, you get real creative. Yeah. yeah. And and when you say they need a good trellis, they need a good trellis. Yes. I mean, we're talking about a lot of weight, right? Yeah, at least 100 pounds per plant. Uh, you're looking at, on average, I mean, New Zealand, they're looking at 40,000, 50,000 pounds per acre, a pound mm-hmm. of fruit per square foot. Mm-hmm. Of uh, of canopy, and so, so th- this is a trellis. Uh, unlike maybe you've pictured a trellis that looks more like a fence, this is a trellis that comes up and and goes outward with vines spread out, almost like an umbrella above yes. you. Yes, and, and it's that's a good good point to mention too, uh, because unlike most grapes, uh, the vines if they're oriented uh, vertically, they will not be fruitful. They'll just be vegetative. So they uh-huh. need to be. Uh, growing out horizontally or at maybe a 45, 60 degree angle. Okay. Okay, good. But yeah, big trellis. And there there are some other, you mentioned the um, uh, um, chinensis, and, uh-huh. and you, you talked about the green kiwi and the chinensis. And there's also another uh, species that you kind of played with a little bit here that uh, I'd like you to mention. That, uh, is it Arguda? Arguda, yeah, you. yeah. So the when I was growing up, what's referred to as hardy kiwi, you'd probably see them in the, in the gurneys, the other seed catalogs. Um, and, and, and by the way, um, and when you see a fruit or a long grass for sale in the slick colored supplement that comes in the paper, in general, that's not a good idea. <laughs> I'll just say. <laughs> yeah, I won't comment on that, but <laughs> but yeah. Well, it's getting sold all over the place with amazing claims. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But, yeah, so the kiwi, uh, hardy kiwi or kiwi berry, um, totally different species. Uh, It's native to China going up pretty far north into China, even kind of into Korea. And totally different species. And I do want to mention that kiwi fruit are dioecious. That means you have separate male and female plants. you got to have both, of course. Males got to be there to provide mm-hmm. the pollen, um, but the kiwi berries. Uh, there are some self-fertile uh, varieties like uh, Issei. Uh, I personally haven't been too impressed with Issei, but we do have about thirty. Issei is I S S A I A I. Okay. And then just the in other... case people are listening and trying to write this down, <laughs> how do you spell that? Yeah. Um, yeah. I S S A I. Reportedly self-fertile. Um, and then the other one that you'll see very commonly is Ananasnaya, which we just abbreviate as Anna. Mm-hmm. Uh, but these are some of the more common ones. But we've got about 30 different name varieties, including males, that we're looking at down in the Brazos River bottom. Um, and the thing with hardy kiwi, as the name suggests, is that they can take the cold. They'll grow up into southern Canada even. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, of course, there's always a trade-off. Right. And in this case, they really languish in the heat. Uh, so we're looking at them under some... A uh, little bit of light shade, mm-hmm. um, but these are really nice because uh, the fruit, if you can find them in the store in the fall, they're incredibly expensive, but they're really tasty. They're these little bite-sized fruit, uh, no skin, completely glabrous, and uh, they're really cool. No fuzz? No fuzz at okay. all, even no. less than the uh, chinensis. Kind of green? Yeah, they tend to be green, but there's some that can have a little bit of a kind of a red or pinkish blush as okay. well. Yeah. All right. Well, that that's kiwi. I know I'm moving through these fast, but there's a lot of these kinds of fruits I think people would be interested in. Uh-huh. Or maybe, I don't know who. Maybe we're saving people money on not not buying something that they're not going to be happy with. But hopefully, we're also helping you uh, have success in growing these. Yes. The next one I want to talk about is one I've recently, in the last couple of years, just really been interested, in, and that's pineapple guava. Uh-huh. 
uh, different from the tropical guava. Yes. Uh, but tell us about pineapple guava. My, I'll just say this. My first experience with pineapple guava was as a landscape plant. Uh-huh. Uh, they have a kind of a pretty silvery-ish green leaf. And yeah. the, the uh, flowers are beautiful. That Real red stamens and a pink uh, soft petal, which is also edible. edible. Yeah. yeah uh, people say it's like cotton candy. Well... Uh, I don't know about more, that. More pineapple-y. Yeah, it's kind of like every meat being like chicken, right? <laughs> um, eat this rattlesnake; tastes like chicken. Um, so the they they have a beautiful, almost a cinnamon uh, peely bark on yes. the, on the trunk often. So I find it a really attractive ornament. Uh-huh. But talk about it from a fruit plant standpoint. What do we know? Yeah. Uh, so pineapple guava uh, or or fejoa, uh comes F-E-J-O-A. from F-E-I-J-O-A. 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 Uh-huh. I never know how to say that. Yeah, I, I don't. I doubt I'm saying it right. But uh, yeah, Aca siloiana, or sometimes still uh, Fehoa uh, siloiana is a scientific name. Uh, it's a distant relative of the tropical guava, as you mentioned. And uh, yeah, very widespread, uh, great, well-adapted ornamental. Uh, we see it growing actually across the road at the... Uh, the a Hotel Conference Center. It's mm-hmm. all around it, planted all around it. Beautiful shrub, uh, small tree, evergreen. Um, and yeah, that's how I became acquainted with it as well. But mm-hmm. when I went to New Zealand studying kiwi fruit, uh, I think it was 2018, I knew that they had a commercial industry there. And some of these fruit were the size of the golden kiwi fruit. I mean, whoa. Yeah. Because it, a normal pineapple guava, I think of as something. I don't know, smaller than an egg for sure. Oh, yeah, I mean, maybe down, grape to small yeah, plum yeah, and, just, and gritty, and I call it squirrel food. Okay. Although I'll eat it, but that's not well, saying much. squirrel food. I watched a squirrel <laughs> run off with one of my tomatoes the other day. So. Yeah, that is uh, yeah, that is true. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, they've done some tremendous work uh, selecting mm-hmm. uh, some really improved varieties of these. And uh, so the fruit is really interesting. It's... It's gritty like a tropical guava. Uh, the skin is edible. Many people like to peel it. Um, the flavor is it's definitely got a strong pineapple note to it, but it has some hints of kind of pear and mint as mm. well. Small hard seeds but that are you just kind of eat. Um, and this is a crop that ripens, depending on the variety, uh, October through December. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the problem with these things is obviously they're they have somewhat limited cold hardiness, uh, mm-hmm. as we learned in Winter Storm Erie. But BCS, they're they're generally pretty well adapted in terms of right. cold. They usually need cross pollination. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing is, you just you can't plant them from seed, just like a pecan. You can't take that, uh, you know, variety that you really like and plant it and expect to get the same thing back. Mm-hmm. They don't root easily from cuttings, and so right now we're mostly grafting, and even that's not real effective. Um, mm-hmm. So another project I'm involved in is, uh, I think we were up to about 30 or 40 named varieties. Okay. Difficult to find. I was just grafting some yesterday. Yeah. But really trying to see of these really exciting, improved varieties, which ones right. are best adapted to Texas. So we've got about three quarters of an acre planted of those down how, how in our many, farm. Roughly how many varieties do you think you're looking at? Uh, probably somewhere between 30 and 40 is what I have. Oh, really? That many? Uh Because it's been a while since we talked and we're trying to figure out how do you get these varieties and because people aren't always willing to share their, their (laughs) stuff, you know, they. And this is a hard one to share too, because it's difficult to clonely propagate. Okay. Yeah. Well, I've noticed fruit around town on them. Uh Uh, There's a restaurant down William Fitch area that, uh, last, before Uri, 
uh, had fruit all over some uh-huh. plants outside the restaurant, and then now the I think there's sago palms in those big Uh-oh. containers that were <laughs> because in a container it was especially susceptible to yeah. cold when it got so bitter Absolutely. cold. Uh, but maybe there'll be a day where we have pineapple guava as a, a fruit plant because we know it grows here. Uh-huh. It's mostly hardy here. Uh, if we get varieties that can cross and pollinate each other, so we have fruit on them. Uh-huh. Uh, that's a win-win. How do you, I wonder how they grow it commercially if it's so hard to either graft or or root? So well, they could be propagated from cuttings. I've gotten a few to go, um, but uh, I know in in Waimea Nursery, that's the main one in, in New Zealand. Uh, but they do have a, a good protocol. They won't share it necessarily. Well, uh-huh. yeah. I don't know how well it's shared around the world, how to propagate. Those have been successful, but mm. we're also looking at tissue culture, micropropagation, oh. by the way. Mm. But um, so those are two, uh, a very specific uh, recipe for cuttings and yeah. then and then tissue culture, two options. Uh, but yeah, they'll grow them in New Zealand as kind of a, uh, I've seen them as, uh, actually trained on a trellis, kind of an espalier. Really? Uh-huh. And then also they'll grow them as a hedgerow because they're basically a big bush, okay. essentially. All right. Well, let's see. Okay, here's here's another fruit that, um, in general, we've always just said, yeah, don't plant it, you'll be disappointed, and that's apricot. Uh-huh. Uh, apricot, uh, and this, apricot's probably one of the best examples of can you grow apricot here? Here, yes, but you can't grow apricots here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so talk about that a little bit. Yeah, that that's a good way to put it. And this would be another one like pomegranate. We could grow the tree or the plant easily, but not necessarily the fruit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so apricot, just uh, in case you, you don't know, is a, is a relative of uh, other stone fruit. It's Prunus armeniaca. Um, the and tree by, is, and by stone fruit, you mean like peaches and plums? Peaches, plums, okay. cherries, uh, cherries okay. almonds, things like that. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and the trees are absolutely, in my opinion, they're, they're beautiful trees. They're, they're generally pretty well adapted, like peaches uh, and other stone fruit. They tend to need pretty well-drained soil, um, mm-hmm. but they're a little more, uh, they tend to be a little more alkaline tolerant. They're, they're pretty easy to grow. Mm-hmm. The issue with apricots is that you may have a bumper crop one year and then see either no fruit or maybe a handful of fruit for the next five, maybe even eight years, and then before you get another bumper crop. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the literature, it really comes down to a lack of hardiness in the flower buds uh, and, and possibly even the embryo of the fruit. Um, so anywhere from early bud swell, that deacclimation in late winter, all the way through flower s- fruit set, um, that plant is very susceptible, at least it's, it's reproductive growth. Um, and it's not even necessarily freezing temperatures or below freezing like with peaches. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can even be slightly above freezing temperatures in conjunction with these erratic swings, which is, yes. of course, what we have here. Welcome to Texas. Yeah, especially this part where we can warm up in between. Mm-hmm. Um, and according to the literature, that is the main problem, and that's why... Okay. Uh, you know, that's why we have the inconsistency. I will say, if you can get a crop, I picked a few yesterday uh, off of uh, my Peggy tree. It's a variety, and they are just outstanding. Right. Better than anything you can get in the store. Wow. And uh, so I think we've, uh, some, Dr. Stein, some horticulturists have identified some that maybe are a little more dependable than others. I mean, it's not going to make apricot a fruit every year, promise. Right. But uh, the, the, 
something from Australia or something like that? Yeah, so I, you know, apricot is probably my favorite fruit, and mm. probably part of it just because it's so hard to get. It's just, I love you know the novelty. You want what you can't grow or what you can't right. have. Uh, but I was talking to Dr. Stein several years ago, and, and he said, "Well, I have this one called Travat, and mm-hmm. I did a little research on it. And it's a drying variety developed in Australia, and he mentioned that you know, yeah, it, it produces." A uh, lot more regularly than the mm-hmm. run-of-the-mill Tisdale, Bryan, Moore mm-hmm. Park, Blenheim right. uh, varieties that we'd grow. And so I, I propagated quite a few of those and passed them around to mm-hmm. horticulturists around the state. Um, this is one that it's about, uh, it's, it's estimated to have about a 450-hour chilling requirement. So mm-hmm. decently well adapted for our area. Yeah, we can get for that our area. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and not too early blooming. Uh but still, it, it, for those listening who are about to go try to Google <laughs> Trevat, uh, it, it's not well tested here uh, no. and for a time, and uh, probably finding it would be still be really it's difficult. It's very, yeah, yeah it's not, very difficult it's to more find. more experimental. But the bottom line on apricots is you grow a nice tree, a very big tree, upright tree, uh-huh. as a matter of fact, uh, and then it's just a roll of the dice every year. And what would you say, eight years out of... Uh, one out of eight years, well, you, you may get some I don't fruit. want to try to put a number on it, but yeah, it's it's less than half the time less anyway. Less than half the time, yeah. okay. But we're hoping to change that. We're we're yeah. going to work hard to change that. Hopefully. And you got some. You're playing around with some apricots. Yeah. So um, we've we've been fortunate enough to receive some funding to do some serious research on apricots. And one of the things I'm doing is, uh, you know, when when you're looking at a crop and trying to see, you know, definitively if it is adapted, I like to, in my philosophy, I like to cast my net uh, wide in terms of genetics. Mm-hmm. So I've found, I think right now I've got about 70 varieties propagated. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's, I know. it's. it's I didn't a, know there were 70. It's a Noah's Ark kind of You know, when thing. someone asked me how many varieties of something people... Uh, the, uh, some fruit there are. I'm just going to say, hold on a minute. I need to call Tim because <laughs> well, and I have been called seventy a, varieties of apricots, and I have been called a cereal propagator. <laughs> I, I don't know if that's good or bad, but uh, I was just <laughs> grafting apricots yesterday. But but yeah, we'll probably I've identified about 140. Uh, many of these are coming from the USDA repository at Davis, right. California. Yeah. Uh, we've got ones from. Pakistan, uh, China, Kazakhstan, Morocco, and the idea is, you know, hopefully find something that is going to be yes. better than what we have, and potentially actually use that to do some some genetic uh, advancement mm. as well, potentially in the future. That yeah. and also looking looking at we have some preliminary data that suggests with protected culture, like yeah. with high tunnel production, it may be feasible too. Well, I, for one, am glad you're a serial propagator uh, because, you know, I've, I've been in extension now for 33 years, and I've seen a lot of fads come and go, and uh, there's a reason why there's not apricot orchards in te- all over Texas right. and, and kiwi orchards all over and stuff. But I think we always have to be out there looking at what's new. Like you said, casting is wide of a net. Let's put 70 apricots out and see what we can learn uh, because— We'd hate for people to go out and spend money on something, give yes. it space in the yard, and eight years from now decide they got to dig it up and try something else. We want them to have success. Yes. So that's that's what we're here about. We're not here promoting, you know, all these fruit. We're just if if you want to give it a shot, we hope we can help you at least avoid uh, some of the problems that happen. Uh, 
I would also like to real quickly just talk about citrus. And I realize saying real quickly citrus in the same <laughs> sentence is like there are only 800 types of citrus, much less varieties. Uh, but what would you say would be two or three citrus that someone might grow here in the Brass Valley? And, and how would you do it? Yeah, so fortunately we do have some, quote, cold hardy citrus. Mm -hmm. um, and so... Um, you know, Satsuma mandarins obviously would be would be uh, one of the first choices I would go toward. I know Dr. Monty Nesbitt has worked a lot with these mm -hmm. uh, Southern Alabama, where they have a, an industry, small industry there. Mm -hmm. um, Satsuma is really unique in that it has some cold hardness, but the fruit come off early. And you got to realize that with citrus, the fruit itself can actually be damaged by the freeze, can yes. be lost, especially once you get below about 26 Fahrenheit. And we're talking October, November. For the satsumas, right? Yeah, yeah, anywhere, especially like some of the varieties like miho and sito can mm -hmm. come off really early. Okay. And so they get off before the, you know, the danger of freeze. Um, and they're, they're generally pretty well, pretty well adapted, uh, especially if you can get them. Uh, citrus are, they can be grown on their own roots. They can actually be grown some from seed and come true. Uh, but generally they're going to be grown from a cutting or, uh, or budded or grafted. And if you could get them on... Uh, budded onto uh, trifoliate orange, which is a wicked, wicked thorny plant, mm -hmm. but incredibly cold hardy. Uh, that'll help a lot. Um, the other one would be Meyer lemon, which is believed to be a, an, an orange lemon hybrid, has some cold hardiness. Mm -hmm. And then one of my favorites is, is kumquat, which is a mm -hmm. citrus relative, a little bite-sized citrus-like right. fruit. And those are all some of the more coldier, cold okay. hardier ones. So... So then, it, lining those up, kumquat is the hardiest, cold hardiest, right? Of the of those, I would, I, depending on the variety of satsuma, I would say it's probably in the same kind of ballpark. Ballpark. Uh, and Meyer lemon would would be a little less cold Much hardy. Less cold hardy. Yeah. And but that uh, the comment you made about um, kiwi in uh -huh. terms of young plants versus old, we find that in satsumas too. That if you put a brand new satsuma out this fall. And we have a such and such temperature in the winter, it may die. Whereas if it were a three or four year old plant, it may not be as cold hardy. I mean, as cold sensitive. Or have you seen that? Yeah, usually it it, it seems to. I don't think there's quite as much of a drastic difference, but 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 we can see that sometimes. Okay. Usually, the the larger the plant gets. Mm -hmm. uh, and the thing with citrus, uh, what I did with mine uh, last year is. Is you know if it's going to be a, a barn burner kind of freeze, really bad one. Mm -hmm. um, you want to protect the bud union, identify yes. that bud or graft union, heap a bunch of soil. Uh, soil is even better than mulch around mm -hmm. it, and at least protect that cyan, which yes. is going to produce your fruit. Right. Uh, and then it'll it'll grow back pretty nicely. So like a, a one foot or more high cone of soil, yeah. uh, that you just leave there for the bad freeze, uh -huh. and then it freezes to that. But that strong root system. Is really vigorous and rebuilding you a tree. Yes, after as long as you got okay. a little bit of, of that cyan left. Um, Another advantage of satsumas and uh, kumquats both is they're small statured citrus. Uh, uh -huh. You know, a citrus trees can get huge. Right. Uh, and these, you could keep them in a ten foot range uh -huh. or eight foot range. Even. Oh yeah. Uh, and it takes a while for them to even reach that size. So covering is feasible in a backyard. And even growing, in a, growing them in a large container as large well. Container. Many people put them on wheels, <laughs> casters. and Yeah, that's that's good. And uh, 
I, I was going to say that he, I, I love limes, and so we've got you know the key limes and Mexican lime, different kinds of limes. Uh, but I grow them here, no cold hardiness to speak of, uh -huh. but it's easy to slip a dolly underneath them, throw oh, a strap yeah. around it, and go into the garage, and you don't even have to go see the chiropractor next week uh, <laughs> after doing that. Uh, so that that would be another reason. They they have a little bit of a challenge. We have a citrus leaf miner that uh -huh. can be a little bit. But I tell you, citrus, is if it never produced a fruit, it would be worth growing for the aroma the smell, of the yes. blooms. Yes. Uh, it is just so Especially nice. if you have it. You know, right outside your door, or even if you bring it yeah. in during the yeah. winter time, it'll just, yeah. just, yeah. Put it on the southwest side of your patio, so the prevailing wind <laughs> takes it across the patio. That's cool, and and citrus uh, is self fruitful, so we don't have to to have uh, different varieties. I do want to make one comment about. Uh, sometimes I'll refer to a container like a half whiskey barrel, uh, but I'm referring to the size because if you grow a blueberry in a container or a citrus in a container. The container's not going to last very long. I mean, you know, X years down the line, it's going to be rotting out, and now what do you do? So make sure your container is, is one that either lasts or be, you're going to be willing to take the equivalent of a half-whiskey barrel of soil and try to repot it. Yes, which good, is not fun. Good luck with that. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I, I'm going to shift off of citrus because I happen to know Tim knows a lot about a million kinds of citrus, but we just got a little bit of time left. I just want to touch base on the basics of success with fruit, and I'm going to throw them out there and just let you comment, and that would be good full sunlight, yes. soil that's, a, that's good for the fruit you're growing, uh, and then a water that's of a good quantity and quality yes. that uh, helps it survive. So any any other thing to... Uh, yes. Maybe toss toss out secrets of success in general. Yeah, so I, I like what you said. A, uh, you know, soil that is appropriate to the crop you're growing, especially mm -hmm. for things like blueberry, muscadine, kiwi fruit that need acid soil. But mm -hmm. but but the common uh, thing there is that they need good internal drainage. Mm -hmm. So you may have to plant on a raised bed. Uh, oftentimes go. here. Then the other thing I think where people usually go wrong, uh, where I feel like I see people. Um, Forgetting a lot of times is you got to practice good weed control. Uh, and remember, the turf grass is a weed when it's growing around That's a tree like that. That's absolutely true. Got to keep that grass usually at least a four feet by four foot area yeah. uh, that is weed and grass free to get it established. There you go. Well, we've been visiting with Tim, Dr. Tim Hartman, our assistant professor, extension specialist in fruit in the Hort Department. And I want to remind you go on Aggie Horticulture website. There's a section on fruit with a publication on everything you can imagine <laughs> that will help you get off to a good start. And you can always call your county extension office as well. Thanks for listening today. We're going to be back next week live again. And Tim, thank you so much. Thank you for having us. me. You've been listening to Garden Success with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist Skip Richter. Join us again next week as Skip discusses your questions about gardening and landscaping in the Brazos Valley. 
Garden Success is brought to you in part by the Arbor Gate, featuring unusual plants, artisan-created decorative pieces, and a constantly changing array of items that bring beauty, comfort, and even flavor to the home and garden. Arbor Gate, 15635 FM 2920, Tomball, Texas, 281-351-8851 or arborgate.com. Garden Success is also brought to you by the Farm Patch, 3519 South College Avenue in Bryan, 979-822-7209.